Well, I love fall, don't you? Good. It's good stuff, isn't it? Fall, the weather, the pumpkin spice, McDonald's serving breakfast all day. Woo. Amen. It's the biggest amen I'll get all, all year. McDonald's serving. Oh, man. But I do love fall. And, uh, you know, most of our college students are gone. Look around. This is what Fonder Church looks like without most of our college kids here. And what I love about college kids, they are, um, you know, they don't make any money. They don't have any money, but they know how to ask for money. And I know several that are in our college ministry that are this week on fall break. They're in places like London and Madrid and San Francisco. And those three people that are in those respective places all asked me for money, sent me a letter for money. I mean, that's a good gig, isn't it? And I want to go back to college. I miss those days, man. That's when it's free and easy and cheap and all that. But I love baptism. Wasn't that great to see these guys uh, be baptized? And uh, Mark, they're clapping for you as you walk into the church house. I love, you know, Mark Baldwin played tight end at Washington State University. He's about 6'6", and that's why we put him in the water with Nick Crawford. Uh, we keep picking on Nick, a former college athlete himself. But I love our church. I love you guys. I just want to say that um, as, as your pastor, I guess I'm most of your pastors. And I just, I didn't say that right. I'm mo most of you, I'm your pastor. How about that? And uh, some of you are like, no, no, no. You're denying me right now. I can see you. But just love you guys and love how you love on people and love... I love Walter Donald. I love Emily Hood. Um, I love Stan and Ramona Troy and how they loved on Sandra and that family. And love how Sandra and her family love on you and love on us. And when one of those boys, Cedric, walked into church last month with a tie on, I mean, my heart just foot filled. Y'all see that? He walked to the front row to hang out with these hoodlums right here with his tie on. But just love you guys and how you love on people. And it's just so good to be a part of this, uh, this faith this faith family. We're uh, today going to launch uh, the second sermon in this new series, this October series that we call Labeled. And this, this whole series, these four weeks, flow from a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples, recorded for us in Matthew 16. We opened the book to Matthew 16 last week, and we saw where Jesus asked these men, he said, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say that you're Elijah, still others say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then Jesus' response, who do you say that I am? And Peter, always the first to respond, said, you are the Christ, you're the, you're the living Christ, the son of the living God. And we know from this passage, this account in Matthew 16, that Peter knew who Jesus was, but Jesus, in his response, we see that he wants Peter to understand who he is. Your identity is really very important. And so we're looking at who Jesus says that you and I are because we wear labels. We really do, don't we? Some of you, you responded to an email I sent about when you were at most disappointed and most down. What was a, a one-word label that you put on yourself? And words came back to me like fat and ugly and insecure and jealous and envious, dumb, inadequate. These are labels that, that we put on ourselves. Yet what a, what a disparity, what a gap between what we say about ourselves and what our God says about us. The one who spoke the galaxies into being says to us that if our life is hidden with Christ in God, that you are loved and you are accepted, you are cherished, you are chosen, you are perfect. We know we're not practically perfect, but we know that we're positionally perfect because of the work that Jesus has done. And so we're looking at four things in these four weeks. And last week we looked at what word? We looked at the word 
ambassador. We said that, that God says that we are an ambassador in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's the text that we put on the screen. And Paul says, hey, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And as new creations in Christ, he says to us that we are ambassadors. We have two big ideas. I shared with you last week. We're going to hit them each week here. Two big ideas when it comes to our identity. And these, they are these. Your identity is not achieved. It is received. And secondly, with a new identity comes a new responsibility. Look at that first one. Your identity is not achieved, it is received. That's hard for us, isn't it? That's tough. In fact, grace just cuts against the grain of almost everything in us. It's just so hard for, for us to receive. We say it's not, but it really is. We live in a performance culture, in a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately society, and we tend to think that love is earned. Your identity is not achieved. It is received. And when we begin to understand that, the happiest and the healthiest followers of Jesus I know get that. They understand that first, and then from that flows this. You see, I think we have it wrong. It flows, number two, with a new identity comes a new responsibility. And often we start with our responsibilities. I'm just going to tell you about you because I know about you because I know about me and I know a little bit theologically and practically about the human condition is that we start with responsibilities and we say to ourselves and to others, if I do these things, then I will receive these things. And Jesus is saying to us, to you and I today about our identity, it is not achieved, it is received. And with this New identity comes a new responsibility. You're an ambassador. What did we say last week? What does an ambassador do? An ambassador um, lives in one country, but he or she represents another country. They negotiate peace. They settle disputes. They ensure that people who need help get help. They bring shalom. They bring peace into a world at war with itself. And without Jesus, without the shalom that Jesus gives, there'll be no peace in the Middle East between the Israelis and the Palestinians. There'll be no peace with Al-Qaeda and the axis of evil and ISIS. And there'll be no peace in this country, in Baltimore or Ferguson or Charleston or most lately, uh, Oregon. We need to be ambassadors. This world needs us. It needs us to negotiate peace, settle disputes, and bring help and to bring peace where it is so war-torn. And we said last week you were challenged from 2 Corinthians 5 to be an ambassador and start with your family. It's the first institution that God ordained on earth. Start with your family. A few of us staff guys, we drove to Atlanta this week for the Catalyst Conference at the Gwinnett County Convention Center, joined 10,000 people, a lot of pastors, a lot of Christian leaders, a lot of Chick-fil-A corporate employees. And and it was fun to be around these guys. And every man talked about their family. We're all in different stages. I'm by far the oldest. But I was looking at every man and looking at every man. We had a deal in our van. Uh, we, it's hard to be a man in a minivan, but we rented a minivan and we drove to Atlanta. And I had a rule. I said, if you take a phone call in the minivan, whoever you're talking to, even if it's the cable guy. And one time Topher talked to the cable guy. But whoever you talk to, if you take that call, you have to end the conversation with, I love you. I love you. I love you. But it's fun to hear these guys not say I love you to the cable guy. But it's fun to hear these guys say I love you to their families. It's fun to get to know a guy like Nick Crawford who just baptized to see how he loves Kristen and his little boy, Coy, and how important it is. That's the first institution that God ordained, and that's where we need to be ambassadors first and foremost. We can't bring peace here. We can't bring peace to the world if we can't lead with peace and shalom in our very own home. 
be an ambassador there. And we talked about our workplaces in the schoolyards of being ambassadors and just how important uh, that is. This morning, I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you would turn there, 1 Peter 2. If you don't want to turn, if you're against turning, we'll put this passage up in just a little bit. But before we do that, I want to give you some background of that passage. Just take it on down. And let me give you a little bit of background. In, in these days, when this was written, when it was penned, and then when it was opened, it was the time of Peter and Paul, and of course, the early church. This is known as an epistle, or you and I would say a letter. A letter was time-bound. It was written by somebody to somebody, and God has given us a peek into it. And Peter and Paul were the two uh, greatest missionaries of the time. And they, they lived, both lived in a city at this time uh, called Rome. We've all heard about it. It's my favorite time to study history, favorite period in history. And they lived there, and they were both about to become martyrs. Paul would be beheaded. Peter would later be crucified. The emperor of Rome at the time was a man called Nero. And Nero rose to power. He entered into power when he was, you ready for this? 17 years old. Now, I have a seven. How many of you have a 17-year-old? I mean, I have a 17-year-old. You know, we trust him with a car, right, but not with a, an entire empire, uh, neuro neurologists tell us that a teenage boy at 17, the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed yet, right? But Nero, as a 17-year-old, is the leader of the Roman Empire. And one of the things he liked to do before Paul Walker and Van Diesel and Fast and Furious and all that, he loved to race his chariot through the city streets of Rome at night. And thousands of spectators would gather to watch Nero, the youngster, the emperor, race other charioteers. How would he light the city? How were the cities lit up at night in that time? Nero took Christians. He tied them up. And his soldiers dipped them into a tar-like substance. They hoisted them up. Lit them on fire. Nero had an axe to grind with Christians. Most of you who study history know that. But why? Later you can Google the great fire of Rome. The day was July 18th, 19th. It began somewhere around midnight on that day in A.D. 64. And the, the, the fire started in a stable, and it spread to a warehouse where, there was, where all the oil in Rome at that time was stored. And the fire took off, and for nine days it burned this great city. Two-thirds of the city, after nine, day, nine days, two-thirds of the city was destroyed including the great uh, museums and libraries and such. And Nero needed somebody to blame. In the aftermath, he had, a, he had what we would call a humanitarian and refugee crisis. Nero calmed the people. He began to get a, a process for rebuilding the city, and he needed a scapegoat, and he blamed the Christians. He, bl he blamed the Christians in addition to lighting them on fire, uh, most of you know this period of history of the Roman Colosseum. Now, uh, my kids yesterday were watching the Los Angeles Colosseum. Last night, they were watching the U.S. play Mexico in soccer. They were disappointed by the results. But in the Colosseum in Los Angeles, there's been great entertainment events. It's a spectacle for the world. In Rome at the time, there were great spectacles and entertainment events. And among them in that period in the A.D. 60s, there was the throwing of Christians to the lions to be devoured, to be consumed by voyeurs as entertainment. And into this society, 
background's kind of important, isn't it? Into this society, Peter says, these believers, they need to be offered hope. They need to be given hope. And he writes this letter to them called 1 Peter. There's a, a Roman historian, Tacitus, who says this about the period, about Nero and his reign. I think we have it. Um, do you have that quote from Tacitus? Nope. The brutality of Nero's measures filled every breast with pity. Humanity relented in favor of the Christians. You see, something good in the midst of this, something good was about to happen. Peter's going to write to them and he's going to say, you have hope and you ought to live differently. And then he's going to call them Aliens. Now, there's going to be several words here used interchangeably. We're going to look at two versions of 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, the ESV and the New American Standard. You'll see words like exile, stranger, sojourners, aliens. Somebody asked me yesterday, what are, you, what are we talking about at church tomorrow? And I was about to say aliens, but that wouldn't be good for our ratings. 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your contact, conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the ESV. That's my preferred version of studying the Bible. I like to read passages in many versions. Here's the New American Standard. Same verses. Beloved, I urge you as, here's the word, as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And we're going to look at what a few of those words mean there, but circle that word alien. And what kind of images does it conjure up? What about Star Wars, right? Chewbacca. You know, it conjures up the image of Chewbacca in my mind. I'm not hairy enough to be uh, Chewbacca. It conjures up images of one of my favorite movies of all time, E.T. And when I was a little boy and E.T. came out, thank God for Steven Spielberg. When that movie came out, man, I was like Elliot in my backyard. I just sprayed Reese's Pieces down in the background, hoping somebody would come out, right? What about th when it comes to aliens? What about th Close Encounters of the Third Kind? That, that, that show got into my head. I, I would... I thought that there were aliens living under my bed. And my dad said, my dad one night, he said, man, I, let's just saw the legs off your bed so the aliens can't get under there. And now I look back and I thought, you know, my dad could have said, there's no such thing as aliens. That would have been a lot more helpful, right? <laughs> but what is this idea? This idea that we are aliens, he's saying to us three points that I want you to get. Is the, the following. In fact, this is the heartbeat of today's message when it comes to living differently. We have what? We have a different leader. We live by a different law and we speak a different language. Peter's saying, stand out. Your life ought to be lived differently. Don't retaliate. There's a lot of evil going on around here. In fact, as we've learned, there's a lot of evil and they're blaming you for the evil. And even in the midst of when you are slandered, when, when someone speaks ill of you, you take the high road and don't retaliate. Why? Because we have a different leader. We live by a different law 
and we speak a different language. Our leader is Jesus. Our leader is love. Our law is the law of love. Read about it in a letter called Galatians. And we speak a different language. We speak the language of love. And at the time and in our time, not much has changed. We live in a world where we're tempted to lust. And as I learned long ago, I learned in college, I heard someone say it at a Christmas conference in Dallas, love, lust can't wait to get, but love can't wait to give. And that's a different call. Are you and I, are we just here to devour? Are we here just to consume? Do we see something or someone and we want that and we take it? Peter's saying, abstain from these fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul. John, the apostle of love, would say in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. For everything that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it's all passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Do not love the world. The lust of the, the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, live differently. Romans 12 says to us that we should not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be alien-like, be transformed, have a different leader, a, a, a different law, a different language, be different. Don't, the Phillips translation of Romans 12 says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And I can't help but think that right now I'm looking at some joyless, frustrated followers of Jesus. Who think the thing to do is to be trendy and hip and flow right along with the culture. And the same ideas that you have today about love, sex, marriage, dating, money, habits, spending, everything. It's just like the world. It's really, you got Jesus. Jesus is a little add-on, a little addendum in your life. And you're wondering why you're so frustrated and joyless. And Peter and Paul would say, be different. There are things that, listen, church, it wages war against your very soul. And I wouldn't be much of a pastor and not just a teacher of the Bible, but a pastor who overcares the souls of many. If I didn't tell you that we live in a world that wages war, we are in a battle. And if you think you're living out your marriage and your relationships and your schooling and your work just on a romantic balcony, you're wrong. It's lived out on a spiritual battlefield. And this war this world is waging war against you. And the answer is not to float like a dead fish downstream. The answer is not just to be like it, but to not, not to love any of that, to live differently. There's an awful lot of home renovation shows, aren't there? A proliferation. There's flip or flop, Love it or list it, property brothers, house renovations, a lot of different shows that make women sit around watching HDTV dreaming of a new home or renovated home while their husband falls asleep on the sofa to televise golf, right? There's a, a show that debuted in 2014 um, last year. I might need your help with it. It's a show with Chip and Joanna Gaines. Fixer Upper. Thank you, Linda. Fixer Upper. It's a show about this couple, Chip and Joanna Gaines. They live in Waco, Texas with their four growing kids, cows and goats and sheep and whatever else Chip brings home to the family farm. And what a farmhouse they live in. And they take, a, there's a, the premise of, of the show 
is this. There's a, there's a couple that moves into town. They're moving to Waco or that area. And they come to town and they're looking for the right house. And they have three options. They have $30,000. They get to choose a home. And it's a major renovation thing. They, I mean, floors and walls and kitchens and bathrooms and walls are knocked down and floors are redone. And there's stains and mildew and just a lot of stuff. And the tagline, and by the way, isn't it interesting that most of these shows, the renovations are done by what looks like former models of Abercrombie and Fitch. <laughs> Have you noticed that? I mean, is that just me or yeah? But they, they tackle this and there's a tagline amidst all the things that just are nasty and mildewy and that need renovation. And there's a tagline, a question to this, to this show, Fixer Upper. It says, do you have the guts to fix it up? And I'm so grateful that we can't ask that question of God because he does have the guts. He started with the first couple, Adam and Eve, and it continues on to you and to me. The things that wage war against us, it's not just out there. You know, we're not just good and there's bad out there and they're trying to get us. There's bad and evil with us. The prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. You have a deceitful heart and I have a deceitful heart and I need some renovating. And I stand before you today as someone who's so grateful that God has taken on a fixer up project in Robert Greene. And you need that. And I need that, that God would do major renovations. We're new creations. We're an ambassador. We're, we're to live as aliens and we can live that way, not because our identity is achieved, but because it's received. We receive his love. And with this new identity comes a new responsibility because we've been loved, because we've been accepted and cherished and chosen and declared perfect. We live according to that. There's something that social psychologists call the looking glass self. Ever study this, the looking glass self? The looking glass self is this idea that you become or you want to become what the most important person in your life says about you. And if it's your spouse or your mama or your daddy or your boss or the bully on the playground, that's an empty well that you're drawing from. But what if? What freedom we would find if the most important person in our lives, God, through Christ, if we wanted to live and wanted to become what he says is true about us. When it comes to being a fixer-upper, Paul said, I don't have the passage today, but if you're a note taker, you can jot down Galatians 5, 18 to 23. And he says that when it comes to the, the floors and the walls and the bad bathrooms and kitchens and the mildew and yucky stuff in our lives, that there's idolatry and immorality, there's, there's drunkenness and division and discord, that there's wrath and anger, fits of anger and rage and jealousy. And God takes on the fixer-upper project called you and me. And if we will let the Spirit work in us, it's a, it's a mystical work. It's a spiritual work. It's not us aiming to do better and try harder. It's letting God in His Spirit live in us. And through that, He will produce new traits in your life and mine. That we can begin to live a different way. We, can, we find the freedom of living a different way. And Paul says in Galatians 5, and 23, that, hey, it's not about the law. The law is love. And the love through the power of the Holy Spirit will produce in us love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. How about that for a renovation project? 
We can be different. We can stand out. We can be strange, exiled sojourners. God desires that to be true for us. Look down if your Bible is still open to 1 Peter chapter 2. And look at verse 12 and the last phrase of verse 12. It says, on the day of visitation. That's a reference. And every alien needs to hear this. It's a reference to our home in heaven. To, to live as, as aliens is to say, hey, this is not our home. And let me say to you, when I start getting really comfortable here, that idea just seems uncomfortable to me. But the more that discomfort, the more the pain and the problems and the heartache and the fallenness and lostness of this world in my life, the more that resonates within me, I have this ache, this longing, this craving, this strong God-given desire for the world that he's created. Look what Hebrews 11 says, verses 13 to 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. Remember, this is the Faith's Hall of Fame where the writer of Hebrews calls out a lot of great men and women who counted the cost and lived by faith. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. By the way, if you, uh, if you preach a prosperity gospel or you're thinking about going to a prosperity gospel church, don't. Don't. That if-then theology, man, it just doesn't fly. It's just not biblical. And it'll leave you in heartache. Some people live by faith and they don't get everything they wanted in this life. Can I say that again? That's so simple. Don't miss it. Some people live by faith and they don't get everything they want in this life. I'm all for circling up and praying for a need, whether it's healing or provision, protection, whatever it is. I've been a part of this. In many instances where we've seen God do something and you look back and go, wow, God. I'm all for that, aren't you? I mean, I want to exercise faith. I want to believe God for all that he has. But I'm just telling you, you got to rip pages out of your Bible like Thomas Jefferson does, did if you want to believe the prosperity gospel because it is not true. It feels good in the moment like cotton candy at the fair, like the Krispy Kreme hamburger. It feels good in the moment and then you deeply regret it. I'm trying to help some of you. You hadn't been yet. I'm trying to help you. This is free. But believing that, there's this emptiness to it because some people, they live by faith, but they didn't get everything. They had to wait to the other world. Now, where am I in this verse? I have no idea. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers, aliens, that is, on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I love the movie Field of Dreams. You remember that scene where the baseball players are coming out of that cornfield and one of them steps up to Kevin Costner and says, is this heaven? And Kevin Costner, you remember what he said? No, this is Iowa. <laughs> but you know, most biblical depictions of heaven are outdoors. God created Adam and Eve and placed them in a garden. 
And when it was heavenly, it says he walked with him, them in the coolness of the day. It probably felt like a day like today. Outside. You see, I wasn't hardwired to be in an office all day. I wasn't built to ride around in a car going to and fro. I wasn't made to go from airport to airport. P.T. Forsythe said the following. If within us we find nothing above us, we succumb to what is around us. Harken back to the last time. Hopefully it hadn't been too long ago when you were out in God's creation and you were enamored with it. And believe it or not, you had no phone or tablet. You didn't check any social media. You were just enjoying what God created. I remember going with friends in my single days, pre-Susan, and we went with some friends to the Bahamas. And one of the guys who took us on a trip, we, we led a campus ministry in Miami. And he, this guy was a trial attorney, no jokes. He gave money to our ministry. And one time he said, hey, we want to take you guys to the Bahamas and let's go shark fishing. And I'm like, I don't have a license to shark fish. I checked online, it's too much money, right? But he, went, he took us to the Bahamas and we had some freedom, this group to, to do fun things and some went scuba diving. I wasn't licensed to do that. I don't know, I have the nerve to do that, but I snorkeled and I snorkeled and I swam and I, I went far and I looked up and I remember having a moment, I still think about it to this day. I mean, I just think, it just comes to mind. I walk by an aquarium and it, it just comes to mind and the beauty of God's creation, so much greater than any aquarium you'll ever find, but the rock formations, the coral and the reefs and the amazing, the thousands, thousands of different life forms down below. And to think, look at what's around us, but what's above us is greater. And I'm paraphrasing this quote now, but if you and I live with the thought of there's something above us and something better for us, we don't have to succumb to everything around us. You see, chalk me up for a person who wants to be more heavenly minded. Aliens, aliens look forward. They know that they're not built for this life. They're created for something else. I want to say this, aliens are artists. There was a social experiment done by a team of Harvard psychologists and they went to three different um, age group schools in different places. They went to a kindergarten class, a third grade class, and a sixth grade class. And they asked the class, they asked the students, are you an artist? Or they, they put it like this, how many of you are artists? Raise your hands. And in the kindergarten class, guess what? Every child raised their hand. Third grade class, less than 50% of the kids raised their hand. Sixth grade class, less than 10% of the kids raised their hand. I'm telling you, you and I as adults and big people were killing the sense of wonder and artistry that God has created in us. God has something in you. And as an alien, you're built not for this world, but for the next one. And you're, you're called to add beauty to this world and to what we weave in time, we wear in eternity. You're created to, to be an artist. God, was, God is an artist. Elohim, he created. He took nothing and made something out of it. And he calls us into that realm as aliens to be creative, to be aliens and ambassadors, to live as new creations in Christ. And in so doing, we create. And one day we're going to be in heaven and we get to add another version.
to the song, another color to the canvas, another scene to the script. The fifth symphony was inside of Beethoven. It had to be drawn out. The Mona Lisa was inside Da Vinci. It had to be drawn out. The secret recipe was inside of Colonel Sanders and it had to be drawn out. Thank God. There's something in you. There's something in you that he has created that, that needs to be drawn out and it needs to be expressed. And for us to live with this sense of wonder, to realize, hey, we are not created for this life. You ought to feel, can I just say it? You ought to feel strange. Now, don't be weird. Listen, if you're a Christian, don't be weird, okay? And I, let me say this just for balance, okay? Paul, it says in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, Paul went around the city of Athens, a culturally rich city of great intelligence. It was cosmopolitan, urban, and sophisticated. And Paul didn't run from it. He went in it, and it says this beautiful phrase in Acts 17, he knew their poets and philosophers. Now, maybe this is different for you, but for me as a pastor, as a student of both the Bible and the culture, I think for me, I want to sometimes know what the artist Macklemore is singing about. All right? Now, we may be different, and mostly I want to listen to music that, that refreshes my soul and that allows my mind to think on the things that are good, virtuous, lovely, and of good report, like Paul said in Philippians 4.8. But, man, we need to be engaged with the world. But let me just say, after having said that, we need to feel strange because we are sojourners. And so let's not spend our time trying to be just like everybody else and trying to fit in to every group. Let's be relevant where we can be relevant, but let's be different. Let's add beauty and wonder and live in such a way that we communicate to people, man, we're not from here. We're from another place and created to go to that other place. Uh, years ago, you guys know I do a lot of weddings, and years ago I did a wedding that was odd and very unconventional. And all the guests showed it was an outdoor setting and it was exquisite. And in this outdoor setting, um, hundreds of guests arrived and when they arrived, they were invited into a tented area with a smaller auxiliary tents. I mean, they dropped some jack on this wedding. And the people, the guests, as they arrived, they were invited straight to the tent or tents and they were uh, brought into the, to the reception, to the wedding reception. And there was music, food, fun, games, just some really cool creative stuff. And it was a little odd at first for most people because they didn't realize what was going on. And then out in the distance, under a tree in the field, was the bride and the groom, her mom and daddy, his mom and daddy, and the minister, me. And the ceremony was taking place out there and people began to look out with bewilderment and they were puzzled at what was happening out there. Some were kind of catching on to this. And then the bride and the groom walked into the tent and people by the hundreds just went nuts, just went crazy. Why? Because they didn't have to sit through another ceremony, right? <laughs> I mean, fellas, you with me, right? I mean, yay. And there was this party, but the party had already begun. And heaven, hey aliens, listen, heaven is a party and it's already begun. In fact, it began 2,000 years ago when a man, a God-man died. And he prepares a place and Jesus said, you must be born again. You need to be childlike. 
Look what we're doing to our kids from kindergarten to third grade to sixth grade, now to adults. What's magical for your children is mundane for you and I. And we say, oh, I can't wait for Christmas. The children love Christmas. We ought to love Christmas. We ought to lead the way in loving Christmas because we know a Savior. We're not going to be here much longer. We're not going to be here as long as the kids are, right? And we ought to be the ones who are most excited. But there's going to be a wedding day the Bible depicts in Revelation. And Jesus said, you must be born again. He said in Matthew 18, 1, unless you become like a kid, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. And he would go on to add to that at Lazarus' tomb in John 11, that whoever is born again doesn't die. Paul would later say that you don't die, you just go to sleep. There's something waiting for us, and it is a wedding, and it is festive. It is odd and unconventional and unlike anything you've ever experienced before. Peter would later say, In 1 Peter 5, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. You know what blocks heaven for me? Pressure. Pressure. I talked to a man this week. I'm short with my wife. I snap at my kids. I've got this job. I make a lot of money. But I've created this lifestyle to which we are all comfortable with and accustomed to. But I hate this. And I'm with my family, and when I'm with my family, I'm torn because I feel like i got to be doing all these other things, but yet I can't quit this because we're used to this. And I hear it all the time. And there's just this pressure, and pressure is like a schoolyard bully, man. It faces you every day. It stares you down, and it picks on you. And Peter would say to these Christians amidst persecution, live differently, you aliens, and live not with pressure, live with peace. The eternal God of peace says you can live a different pace of life. You can live completely different and look forward to the bigger picture of it all.